What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans. And it's uh, Dan's boy, Nathan. <laughs> Are you sound right? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> All right, Nathan, what's been going on? Well, what uh, hasn't uh, been going on? So we're kind of so rushed um, with the amount of events that have unfolded uh, in like the kind of general manner of corruption and just stupidity that is like the Welsh government that we're just going to have to really run through these quickly without expanding them on. We'll forego... Our usual Oxbridge pleasantries. Yeah. And just sort of a little back and forth. Because, you know, we it's just taken for granted that we're both bad. Yeah. Well, and you, you broke your wrist. I did break my wrist. No Pimp slapping. Okay. So, yeah, as Nate said, if you don't follow Welsh politics or if you do follow Welsh politics, the last two, three weeks has kind of been, it kind of sums up it all, really. It's just sort of farcical, pathetic. But, like just, we've said before, it's just like Welsh politics is almost like the internal drama of like a a council department getting played out on a kind of you know yeah, national stage elevated because it's Wales they, they've got a national platform rather than a rotten borough or whatever as private I used to call it so we'll go through it chronologically what's been happening so first there was the Labour deputy leadership uh, Welsh Labour deputy leadership election and Hugh Williams our boy wrote a good article on this in nation.cymru which is important and because we know a lot of our listeners you know, hate Welsh Labour a lot of our listeners good you know support Welsh Labour Bad. you know but the issue is, you know, you know, why should non-Labour Party supporters be interested in the the sort of internal machinations of the Labour Party uh, in Wales? And the reason is, you know, sadly that the internal goings-on of the Labour Party play far more of a role in the direction of Wales and Welsh politics than the Welsh Assembly elections and, and the competition between Labour and other parties because Labour aren't likely to get voted out of power anytime soon. So it's more interesting or important, rather, who's elected to the leadership of Labour. So... It's also funny as well, in a really kind of yeah, self-harming way. So, so the Labour deputy leadership election, um, there's a funny clip where Carolyn Harris can't justify why there's a need for a deputy lady. And basically it was between Carolyn Harris and Julie Morgan, you know, Roger Morgan's wife. Uh, and it's it was basically a proxy war over this issue of one member, one vote. And I'll briefly explain why that's significant. So one of the legacies that Jeremy Corbyn will leave is that he's basically made the internal processes of the Labour Party in England and Scotland at least more democratic. So it basically means that, you know, one member, one vote, it's almost you know right, that which which for the uninitiated, for normal people, that would seem that makes how, sense, doesn't that's it? That's how politics works. That's democracy. Know, that's democracy, one party. That's but, West know, Wing democracy. But not in um you know that's represent how representative democracy works, but you know, not in the Labour Party until now. The Labour Party has been notoriously undemocratic because What's been happening basically before one member, one vote introduced by, well, it was introduced by Ed Miliband actually, but the alternative voting system is something called the Electoral College. And in that, a third of the votes go to Labour Party members, a third go to affiliated supporters of the Labour Party, so that mainly the trade unions, and a third go to, you know, MPs, AMs, and members of the European Parliament and things. So basically, the problem with the Electoral College, you know, we saw in back in 1999, when Alan Michael, you know, the first first minister of Wales, got parachuted in. And what happened then was that Peter Hayne and the trade union bosses in Wales, who were all like very pro Tony Blair, they wanted Alan Michael to be the first minister of Wales so he could just do Tony Blair's bidding. They didn't want Rodri Morgan. But what happened was Rodri Morgan obviously was more popular with the, the Welsh Labour members because, you know, he been campaigning around to establish Welsh Assembly. Alan Michael just hadn't bothered. He just didn't get involved. Alan Michael's a non-entity. And so Roger Morgan won the votes of the Labour Party members through the rank and file. 
But that didn't matter because if you read Martin Shipton's book, Poor Man's Parliament, about the establishment of the Welsh Assembly, he says that under the Electoral College, you basically got three men in a room, your trade union bosses in Wales, deciding where the votes of all the trade union members are going to go. So they basically gerrymandered it. So what happens basically is that they'll say, right, our unions are going to vote for this bloke. And there's no discussion with the members or anything like that. It's it's completely undemocratic, and it means that. Are you saying that unions are undemocratic? <laughs> well, it well it basically means that that the people people can impose their preferred candidate, right? And the, the the campaign was pretty interesting because if you look at the her sort of vote for Carolyn videos, she actually had like the support of people like Dennis Skinner, Diane Abbott, you know, left wingers, and in her marketing material, she was sort of selling herself as being you know, close to Jeremy Corbyn. So you wouldn't have known if you, you know, weren't from Wales, I don't think, that the actual issue that over the election was about the voting system. That's why it was a proxy war over the voting system because Carolyn Harris was the preferred candidate of the people who wanted to keep the electoral college, whereas Julie Morgan was the preferred candidate of the people who wanted one member, one vote. So that's basically what it came down to. And surprise, surprise, Carolyn Harris... One, because, you know, obviously the people in charge of the Electoral College want to elect someone that keeps that with... Uh, yeah, self-preservation, yeah, isn't it? Is. Yeah. it? It was it was a foregone conclusion. And what happened was Julie Morgan, you know, got 9,110 votes and Carolyn Harris got 7,709 votes. So Julie Morgan had more votes, but she still lost because of the way it's weighted towards the MPs and AMs and trade union officials. So it's completely undemocratic. And what's interesting is that it means that Wales has started, I think, to become a bit of a pariah within the British Labour movement. We, you know, because we've been banging this drum for ages, saying that, you know, a London or, you know, an English Corbyn supporter, you can't just tell people in Wales to keep voting Labour because the people we've got here are some of the worst people in the world. I mean, you know, these are not good socialist people. These are venal, useless Blairites. Um, I, I don't even think it has anything to do with Labour as, you know, them purposely choosing uh, Labour as a political party due to some, you know, um, shared political philosophy. Yeah, it's, yeah just, it's just the it's the it's the path you go up, isn't it? Yeah, because it, one party, because of one partyism, I mean, everyone knows in Wales, if you want to get ahead, you just join the Labour Party and it just means you attract these sorts of people. But, but what's interesting now, yeah, so John Landsman, you know, the chairman of British Labour Party sort of sent a very angry text saying, you know, congratulations to Julie Morgan because she, you know, she should have been the real winner. And so what it meant in the Labour Party conference when the, the result was announced that one member, one vote isn't going to go away because it's, you know, there was a sort of outcry about it. There was a big protest in the thing. So it was, you know, that's going to be the issue for the Labour Party because, because, you know, why is it that in England and Scotland, you know, the Labour Party has one member, one vote, but in Wales, They've persisted with the Electoral College because it's just naked self-interest. And they're just basically saying, well, we don't care what's happening. We're going to do things our way the way we've always done it. But that's not the only election coming up, is oh, it? Yeah, well, that's there's... gone. But So you what know. else happened? All right. And then and then in the conference, wow, it must have been really interesting if you were up there. <laughs> Carwin Jones stood down at the Labour Party um, conference in Clandidna or whatever. And then like Jeremy Corbyn was there and Corbyn had to like fake and sort of pretend that he gave a shit about Carwin Jones, you know, after Carwin Jones like absolutely tucked him up in the past and campaigned against, you know, sort of undermined him. Well, I mean, this is the whole thing, wasn't it, when he was just like, uh, yeah, Theresa May, I got you back on Syria. Well, revenge, revenge is sweet, though, man, for Cor- Corbyn. I mean, like, Carmen Jones probably would never think that he would, uh, Corbyn would outlast him, but there he is. So Corbyn was obviously magnanimous and, you know, said, you know, so Carmen Jones is standing down. 
wow, man. And then Adrian Masters, like the ITV correspondent, said like people people were crying. It's absolutely hilarious. I was just like, that was that was a really he has left a hell of a legacy. Know, but, in a, but, a, but in a you know in a in a sad week to hear that people were like you know people were crying that really cheered me up. I was just delighted about it. Yeah, it was pretty good. But yeah, what a Wow, what an amazing legacy he's going to leave, Carwin Jones. Child poverty. I mean, the thing with Carwin Jones is almost like he was, I don't know, the manager at Dixon's that accidentally became like, you know. Not a competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah become the um, leader of the country. Yeah, first minister of Wales. So then into the breach steps, another really inspiring <laughs> candidate, Mark Drakeford. Um, uh, do you know what? Mark Drakeford, like, I think just the way he looks and his, probably philosoph- his whole philosophy is like slow and steady wins the race. So like, Mark finally Drakeford done is... It. I mean, I guess the significant thing. I mean, Mark Drakeford is actually supported by some some good people, you know, some actual good socialists. But I mean, like in the People's Assembly meetings in Cardiff and stuff, that, you know, Welsh Labour grassroots put a lot of faith in Mark Drakeford, and obviously he's a smart guy, you know, former academic. Apparently he's a socialist, but he's he also looks like an anthropomorphic Disney character too, but, doesn't he? But he's also said, like already in his interviews, like I'm not an insurgent candidate. You know, I've been a government minister, so he's. I mean, if you want, if you're viewing him as a radical socialist, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid you're going to be extremely disappointed. But um, luckily, though, he uh, he negotiated <laughs> um, keeping all those devolved yeah. powers in the European Union, didn't he? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get on to that briefly. Um, but the significance of Mark Drakeford and the only thing, basically, the only reason that he could possibly be good is that Mark Drakeford could be elected by one member, one vote. So what would happen? You know, the legacy of Drakeford being elected would be that you know one member, one vote would be sort of formalized within the welsh labor party and that would be his legs you know that's that's the highest hope it, it isn't, possibly have. isn't it kind of a given at the moment like the kind of the crown will pass to him even though yeah. there's um you know uh our boy hugh aranka davis had a had a nice argument with him on my uh oh, my man, doorstep. So, so many so many ins- inspiring candidates ken skates von gethin von gethin um, the uh if if malcolm x became an accountant von gethin. <laughs> so von gethin and then elenid morgan i mean these are all they they don't even deserve Life. Just any time to speak, but they're just so uninspiring and awful and useless. I mean, like Leonard Morgan, like, like rather than saying I'm going to run as a candidate, Leonard Morgan launched like a a consultation website where you can just, you know, if I was immature, I would just fill it with abuse and just send it off to his <laughs> advice. But but you either want to run as a leader of a country or you don't. You mm. either know what people like. Oh, what do you want? Yeah, Which, uh, I'll I do it if you want me to. But uh, it's it's just. What it is, it's that labour mentality of like, oh, let's just do a focus group, find out what people want, then we'll go on that, rather than, you know, let's actually have principles. Um, but she's applying it like to the whole country. So, And then Drakeford was involved in this latest shit show, which was basically the EU withdrawal bill. So in the past, you know, if you've been following the podcast, if you've been following, following Welsh politics, following Brexit, there's been a massive controversy and debate about who is going to have control over the areas of life that the EU used to have control over and the controversy over the the british government's withdrawal bill is that the welsh and scottish governments weren't going to consent to it because they viewed it until now as a power grab they viewed it as you know rolling back devolution because they thought they basically were arguing that westminster government under Theresa may wanted to take the you know take powers back from you know from the welsh parliament from the welsh government and keep them in westminster and you know, there's all these photos, Carwin Jones saying that, you know, he, he, he was opposed to power grab, he's going to stand shoulder to shoulder Nicola Sturgeon. But obviously, you know, we predicted this, you know, months back and said, well, obviously Carwin Jones will ultimately always buckle. He's not going to stand up for Wales. He's not going to stand up for the government. He's always going to side with Theresa May over Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, and, and so this is exactly what's happened. We've 
you know, we were proven right and the Welsh government capitulated and, and basically gave in. Um, and powers now will be clawed back, essentially, while the Scottish government have stood firm. He's, he, he's, the worst thing about it, he's, he's completely tucked up Nicola Sturgeon, but there are so many... Um, it kind of makes it look better, though, I mean, in the eyes of just, like... I'd, I'd kill to have someone like Nicola Sturgeon or, or a pie like the SNP. Well, I mean... I mean, Plyde are doing their best and everything, but, you know, there, there's limit to... There are, so there's... It's quite interesting, I think, that the the the, the Labour Party um, meant. I mean, so I thought there's a number of reasons why they were going to capitulate. Um, Joe Hunt and Rachel Minto, you know, academics of Cardiff University, have written a great paper, and they basically said that Carwin Jones' negotiating strategy in all this is basically that Carwin Jones is like a pet. You know, he's like, I'm going to portray myself as a good unionist, don't rock the boat, and basically hope hope to get rewarded. Um, and that's down to two things. Firstly, is because you know ideologically. He actually is a unionist. You know, we saw that when he went up to, you know, the Scottish doing the Scottish referendum, and he was basically just saying how great the union was. And so he is actually committed to the. You know, I think a lot of people implied can't sort of comprehend. Mm. Like, yes, he's a devolutionist, but yeah, he is also a unionist. Second, he hasn't got any leverage. Like Wales has no power. Wales vote for Brexit, so he's obviously sort of going to be a bit more compliant than Nicola Sturgeon. And the other thing I thought was that you know it's become quite clear in the last few days, the last few months rather, that the Welsh government, if you read like the debates around like the devolution of rail infrastructure. And if you read like the minutes, like Ken Skates has given evidence and stuff, it's quite clear the Welsh government don't want certain powers, don't want more powers. I mean, we notice it in our everyday lives that they're completely shit and incompetent. But there's all these things in like the the minutes of those debates and the Welsh government basically like we don't have the capacity to deal with these things. And, and that is, you know, that's firstly done to competence. That, you know they can't deal with complex issues, but it's also due to like the small size of the assembly and the fact they're overstretched. So I think that was another it's, factor. It's a fact- political manoeuvre as well. Is so essentially they can kind of you know really um, hold on to their power by saying like, well, listen, we're not responsible for this, so we can't do anything about it. Yeah, that, that's, that's probably. But but so, so so that's what I thought was you know unionism, a lack of leverage, and there's also the fact that they don't particularly want more powers, and obviously that's a mindset that. Plied in particular couldn't but then i mean from the response of like labor people on twitter i was like well actually i'm giving them too much credit because it, it just became very clear that they thought they'd done some like looking at lee waters and things like that their, their twitter account they actually think they've done some miraculous statesman like act here when it's quite clear that you know if that's the criteria that they're judging it on it just comes down to the fact they're really stupid and can't negotiate and, and that, that's all it is so we've given them far too much credit um you know they were really shocked at the thought that people said this is a bad deal and um, like there are things like you know, Carwin Jones said he was going to be opposed to a sunset clause. That, that was like the one thing he explicitly said, and then he just completely agreed to a sunset clause. So it's yeah. so they just basically. I mean, you can you can overthink things and attribute all these reasons for why they did what they did. You know, ideology, lack of leverage, but a lot of it, I think, in Wales just comes out of the fact that they're just basically useless people that have got to where they are because they're loyal party idiots without any talent and that's how they've risen through the ranks oh yeah definitely okay we're joined by steve howell steve is the deputy director of strategy and communications for jeremy corbyn's campaign how are you going steve good thank you yes yes and you've just released your book game changer eight weeks to transform british politics that's right when was it out uh well actually it's coming out officially next week on the 18th of april the anniversary of the of the election being called, the snap election being called. Is that coincidence or no? That was clever that marketing. Was clever, clever, clever planning. Is very clever. <laughs> yeah. This is how important we are now as a podcast that we get advances, you know, sort of advanced, yeah. advanced uh, 
copies and breaking news. And, um, Secretly as well, we proofread the manifesto and then accidentally leaked it, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steve, the game changer. Is that you? Are you the game changer? No, I, I'm absolutely <laughs> not the game changer. The campaign is the game changer. Okay. Game changer. <laughs> the, ca- the campaign that... Uh, the election that transformed British politics. It was a it was a game changing election because, uh, in two senses, one is no one expected Jeremy to do as well as he did. We were coming from a uh, you know fifteen point we were fifteen points back in the polls, and it was also a game changing election in the sense that you know we stopped the Tories from having a majority, and that's changed the whole political situation in this country. Absolutely has. So we're going to just do the chronology I guess what happened you know so how did it all start well for me how it started was that uh, I got a call from uh, Seamus Milne who's Jeremy Corbyn's director of strategy and communications asking if I was interested in taking up this job as his deputy and it was in January uh, beginning of last year and obviously the previous summer 2016 there'd been a very bruising leadership battle second leadership battle and although Jeremy was re-elected by a convincing majority. It had severely damaged the party in, in the stand, in, in you know, in terms of its standing with the public and the opinion polls. Although I'm not obsessed with opinion polls, they do tell you something about their political mood. And they were all saying that you know Labour was down somewhere in the sort of mid twenties or worse in some cases. And so we were obviously severely damaged by that. Not, I don't think they were. Those polls were a reflection on Jeremy. In fact, if you look at the polls earlier in the year, you know, Labour was beginning to do quite well. We were getting up into the thirties in in March and April and May prior to the second leadership election. But the public don't like parties that appear to be at war with within themselves and in complete disarray, and that's understandable. So, so there was a big job to do to kind of recover the credibility of the party. And, you know, there were a lot of people, when I took up the job, uh, you know, I soon discovered that a lot of people working very hard on that in Jeremy's team on policy and planning to announce policies and all the rest of it. But, you know, those things hadn't hadn't come together. And part of my job was to make a contribution to bringing that together. But at that stage, we didn't know there was going to be a general election. What was coming up were two by-elections in Copeland and Stoke Central due to the resignation of two Labour MPs. And so in this situation where the position of Labour was really bad in the polls, we were facing these two by-elections at the end of February, where there was felt to be every possibility Labour would lose them both. Which would be unprecedented for a by-election, And, you know, for an opposition party to lose seats, typically you expect an opposition party to be gaining ground on the governing party. That's the kind of considered the norm, although it's not actually always the case, but... uh, but the, that's, that would be the expectation. Going back a bit, I mean, we, we talked a bit about this off air, going back to the autumn of 2016, and so much stuff happened in politics within the Labour Party in terms of leadership elections and clearly concerted campaign against Jeremy Corbyn. At the beginning, you know, when you got in, and as you said, the polls weren't good, was there any degree of self-awareness from the people who were, who were sort of campaigning against Corbyn at the time? Because one of the things that struck me at the time was, there's this huge internal power struggle where the right to the, the Labour Party trying to overthrow Jeremy Corbyn, which leads to obviously low polls, and then the right would point to the polls and say, "Self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy." Yeah, and yeah. it's like, well, obviously, yeah. pe- obviously, the reason they were doing so badly is because it's tearing itself apart in public because of this constant, constant attacks and and public undermining of the leadership. And what was the atmosphere like internally when you took over in terms of the relationship with the right wing? 
Well, I started just after the, these two by-elections and we lost Copeland and won Stoke Central and losing one was bad enough. So the mood at the beginning of March when I actually started, or end of fe- February when I actually started, was pretty grim. There were rumours of you know another leadership challenge and all the rest of it. And the first PLP meeting I went to was a very... Um, tough meeting from Jeremy's point of view. He was constantly being heckled. He could hardly make himself heard. It wasn't the majority of people there, but it was enough who were vociferous to just make it an impossible meeting. And people would say things like, you know, there's an ex- existential, the Labour Party faces an ex- existential threat, by which they tended to mean a lot of us are going to lose our seats. <laughs> yeah. uh, actually, I mean, the Labour Party as a, as a party didn't face an existential threat because we had more members than we've probably ever had. But people, like you were saying, the the party was facing a huge facing a huge challenge. And what but what people don't look at in these situations, you you, you raise the question of self awareness. There was a certainty around the argument that you've got to be in the centre to win elections. That all elections are about this Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Basically, you've got, you know, Tony Blair or Nick Clegg or David Cameron, all very similar to look at in style and in policies. And basically, the election is a sort of a game that's played between these players in this in this middle ground. But actually, if you look at the way that politics has moved since over the last nearly 10 years, since the financial crisis and the the banks collapsing and austerity and so on, politics has become much more diverse. And one of the things that was interesting for me when I looked, when I was taking the job and I was looking at the polls, and I, you look at the detail behind the polls rather than the superficial numbers, because that's where you find your clues to what's really going on. But it was interesting for me just how big the support for Jeremy was amongst young people and how that was weighted down in the, in the final figures on the polls. They were assuming those young people wouldn't vote. And of course, in the 2015 election, a lot of young people didn't vote. And, and that's what let Labour down. And when it looked like Labour was going to do quite well and maybe win, uh, they didn't in the end because the turnout amongst young people wasn't as good as, as hopeful. But, you know, would Jeremy motivate those young people to actually vote uh, more than Ed Miliband had? There was that factor. And there was also the factor that politics become more fragmented. People had gone to the SNP in Scotland or they'd gone to the Greens or they'd gone to UKIP uh, because of Brexit. And so you've got this fragmentation in politics. And in 2015, it was the first election where the three traditional main parties, the Liberals, Labour and the Tories, couldn't manage between them to get half the electorate to vote for them. Now, if you look back over electoral history, and I don't, don't think it's been remarked on you know, discussed. It was, I don't remember it being discussed at the time. When I looked at the figures, I was quite shocked to find that they only got 49%. 51% of the electorate either voted for other parties or didn't vote at all. And that's just the registered electorate. There were a lot of people who hadn't even registered to vote. So there's this huge pool of people who are alienated from politics. And the 2016 referendum showed us that that when they come out, when they come out, you know, they've got something to say. Now, we might not like what they're saying, but they've got something to say. So it seemed to me that this situation was very, very fluid. And it was a question of we, we were certain, I mean, all of us in Jeremy's team were certain we weren't going to play the old, by the old rules of, you know, Tweedledum, Tweedledee, playing on the middle ground, 
what they call retail politics. You know, we'll do this nice thing and that nice thing, and that you know they won't kind of thing. We were offering a comprehensive alternative to austerity. You know, something that was radically different. That was was a set of policies that would work together to fundamentally change society, send society in a different direction for the many, not the few. And it was a transformative argument. And a lot of the uh, Parliamentary Labour Party just couldn't, or you know, quite a, quite a few of them anyway, just couldn't really kind of get that. Well, one of the one of the most interesting things, or infuriating things about this, t- well, it's still going on, both in the American election with uh, Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders campaign, and then the Corbyn versus Owen Smith. It's almost like a, a cult-like obsession with this idea of the centre ground of politics. And for someone who you know is a political sociologist myself, you know. Within academia, or but even if you just talk to normal people, it just seems quite obvious that the centre ground is why people are alienated and why people stop voting. And, and there's a wealth of political theory, and, you know, Colin Crouch and Peter Mayer and things, which says that you know, people are alienated from politics because of this, the convergence of the main political parties. And, and amongst the Labour right, it's almost like a determined, well, just a sheer determination to shut out all the available evidence put your head in the sand, cover your ears with your hands and say, no, no, no. Is that an arrogance? Is it a lack of engagement with, you know, quote-unquote, regular people? Even now, people are still saying, you know, after almost their idea and understanding of the world has collapsed around them with the success of the Corbyn campaign, the success of Sanders. But people are still saying, you know, this is, centrism is still the way forward. I, I yeah. thought that was through just simple politicking, though. So if you... Well, like, no, they generally believe, generally yeah. truly believe. Like, and then Macron got elected recently, and there's like, ha, vindicated, you know, the mm. centre is... But obviously Macron is going to absolutely tank, and then the far right are probably going to get in in France and yeah. in the next election. I mean, he, he, he basically got about 24% <laughs> of the vote. I mean, he didn't, he didn't command... Yeah, and it, it was only because there was a runoff between him and the far right person that obviously a lot of people on the left voted for him as the lesser of two evils. But it wasn't a, it wasn't as if it was a kind of overwhelming endorsement of the middle ground in France. There's an assumption, isn't there, amongst these... The, it's almost um, a taken-for-granted assumption amongst the, the Labour right that people aren't going to vote, so mm. forget about them. Mm. Is, is, that, is that right? Yes, there was a dismissal of the idea that young people would vote uh, within in, in, the, in the arguments we were having within the party between Jeremy's team and the sort of party machine, if you like. They were sort of dismissing. I mean, one person said in one of the discussions we had just after the election was called, you know, there's a reason why we, we call them non-voters. They don't vote. And there's just an assumption that certain types of people, particularly young people, don't vote um, or don't even register to vote. But just to take a step back a minute, I think it's important also to sort of think about this, what this centre ground is anyway, ideologically, because it's, the implication is that it's, it's almost non-political. Yeah. It's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's, it's just the practical, obvious, common sense politics. You know, this is how we run things. And what's come to be accepted as common sense is actually what we used to call Thatcherism. Absolutely. But Thatcherism actually is really something else, which is neoliberalism, which was ideology developed in, particularly in the US, in Chicago, University of Chicago, and experimented, test-bedded in Chile, uh, and then adopted by Thatcher and Reagan in the US and Britain. And the main ingredients of neoliberalism are that privatisation, 
is a good thing. The overarching thing is that markets are the best way to resolve everything, to decide what prices should be, how distribution of wealth should be, how production should be, what is produced, what isn't produced. Uh, so markets are sacrosanct. And, and the default position is it's always better to privatise something or to outsource something. You know, you'll get, you'll get a, the profit motive makes things more efficient. And as we've seen with scandal after scandal, whether it be PFI or whether it be Carillion or, you know, all sorts of other things, the way the rail system has proved to be less efficient under, under privatisation or whatever. Actually, this whole theory of neoliberalism, you know, has failed. And the ultimate failure was the, the fact that the banks were deregulated and in the end they nearly brought the entire world economy down. And, and it was ironically only state intervention and taxpayer money that saved the world economy. The markets had failed in a cataclysmic way. And so, you know, this idea that the centre ground is the moderate position when it actually almost brought the world to a complete stop in economic terms is laughable. And so I think in a way we should nail the myth of the centre ground. It's, it's actually a very extreme view about economics. It's a very extreme view about the fact that markets are, are perfect, which they're not. And often they're not. You know, if you take social care as an example, the reason why the social care system is in crisis is because there's no profit in it. So nobody, no, nobody wants to touch it. And there are a lot of examples of market failure. The housing market is an example of market failure. So, you know, I, I think in a way it's better to stop talking about the centre ground. I, I think the new centre ground, if there is a centre ground, is actually the Labour manifesto. That's the new centre of gravity in politics. And even the Tories are having a debate now about whether to kind of play Corbyn's game and uh, adopt some of the policies that, that, that Labour had because they realise that it's staggeringly obvious that you know, neoliberalism has failed. There are others in the Tory party who say, no, we've got to stick to our guns and defend the idea of free markets, but uh, it's a, it's an I wouldn't say that we've completely won that argument against neoliberalism, but certainly this election was the underlying theme of it was essentially a battle between neoliberalism and a socialist approach, or at least a uh, let's say a, a way of radically reforming capitalism to make it uh, a fairer system. I think for those of us outside the Labour Party. So then, you know, non-aligned socialists, there's been a lot of communists and anarchists rejoining the Labour Party. I think you're right that one of the reasons the election was so pivotal and important was because of what it represented, potentially denting this neoliberal sort of common sense. And as you said, I think Stuart Hall in the 80s wrote that amazing pamphlet, you know, The Great Moving Rights Show, and how, as you said, what is now the centre ground and what is now common sense and take for granted is actually an extreme position. Mm. And so the, the important thing for us, the exciting thing for for almost not neutral observers, but for people who think that neoliberalism is horrific, is evil, is about transferring wealth to the a small minority of people and making everyone else poor, just having almost a return to basic Keynesianism mm. is staggering, almost given the, what, what's happened in the Blair and, and Cameron. One last thing on the Labour right, because I am sort of fast, morbidly fascinated with a lot of these people. Mm. Is Blair's legacy responsible for for their sort of grim determination to hang on to this this model of doing politics? Um, 
you know, I know they call him Tony, and you know they all sort of refer to. Well, him as Tony. yes, there there is this uh, among not a majority, far from it, of the Parliamentary Labour Party. But there is there there is a group within the Parliamentary Labour Party that is in awe of Tony Blair. You know, he's seen as the most successful leader that Labour's ever had, which actually technically is not true because Harold Wilson won four elections yeah. and Tony Blair won won three. But um, He's seen that he's you know he's revered in that way. I mean, less less so than it was, but there was certainly that that reverential at- attitude. And there's, there's probably you know I don't know ten fifteen percent of the parliamentary Labour Party who still feel like that. Um, but I th- I think uh, you know a lot of Labour MPs just want. I mean, to be fair, you know they they, they there were some of them who were unhappy about uh, Jeremy's election as leader because they genuinely thought that someone of the left was not electable. You know, yes. n- not not because they, you know, a lot of them would say, look, I'm a socialist. Of course I'm a socialist, but you've got to be realistic. The electorate, you know, you won't win the electorate to those kind of radical ideas. And uh, we've got to be, you know, we've got to be more moderate. We've got to be more centrist. So they're looking at it from a kind of practical electoral point of view. But I think what everybody underestimates, whatever their, whatever their motives and whatever their background, I think many in the Parliamentary Labour Party underestimated was how much the mood in the country had shifted. And I think that came through in the election campaign, uh, that that the mood had radically shifted and that people were tired of austerity and the unfairness of it and were motivated by a more progressive, you know, well, a progressive manifesto. Okay, great. So we've talked about, you've had a very hard first meeting. The, the meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party, is that where does that occur? In well, Westminster is a funny place. You know, the Palace of Westminster is this, you know, Victorian oh, I know it well. <laughs> yeah, uh, building. Uh, every room that you go in, the meeting rooms you go in, they're all very sort of dark. With you know, kind of, it's it's like being it's it's like being somewhere between a sort of medieval castle and um, and, and a big cathedral. And every every room seems to be rather dark. And so meetings take on this take on this kind of medieval character, you know, like a gathering, the Parliamentary Labour Party meets like a gathering of medieval barons. Or a goblet, someone's wearing a crown. <laughs> I mean, one, one, of, one of the Labour MPs, Chris Williamson, who's a big supporter of Jeremy, has been arguing, he, I think he had a piece in one of the papers today, arguing for Parliament to be moved to the north of England. I think it's a good idea moving it to the north of England or anywhere outside London, but, um, but moving it to more modern building would help. Mm. You know, it's just so... Local YM, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's knock off early so we can go for a swim. So you've had this, you know, this hard first meeting. The mood is obviously Corbyn out sort of thing, um, or at least from a vocal minority of people in the PLP. Hmm. What happens then? I mean, how do you how do you start? What well, It starts to click in. What we were trying to do, and, you know, this, this was already being discussed before I started. We still hadn't moved it hadn't moved very far forward, was to get a bit of a campaign going around Jeremy's key policies. Obviously, he'd stood in the leadership election on a platform and there were 10 key points in that platform. But those then had to be translated into meteor policies. The detail of them had to be worked up and that had been going on. So in the behind, behind the, the scenes, scenes. People, are, people are writing the, the manifesto, basically. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Fisher, who's... Uh, uh, Jeremy's head of uh, director policy had underneath him a, a very strong team of people who were working on policy, and all that it was 
you know, very pleasant surprise to me to find that all that work had been done, so much work had been done. I mean, not everything was ready to roll and final, but it's certainly a lot of a lot of stuff was. Did, did they have like um, ideas in anticipation, or was it as soon as like you know gunshots or the action were fired, they just like kind of started scribbling stuff down? No, it, it was all being it had all been worked up over quite a long period. Oh, right. And and we were we had policies that were ready to announce before the election was even called. And this is one of the big mistakes that May and the Tories made was that they were busy for, we now know that for several weeks through sort of March and early April, this period I'm talking about, they were behind the scenes at Chequers, you know, plotting to call a snap election. And they weren't paying any attention to what we were doing. You know, I think they'd completely written Jeremy off as no hoper and they could easily beat him. And the only question was, you know, whether or not to actually fire the gun on, on a snap election. What they hadn't noticed was that we, we'd started making policy announcements. Uh, it didn't really start until the very end of March, beginning of April, but we announced a policy on free school meals. We announced a policy, a number of policies for small businesses and the self-employed, uh, policies on the you know, minimum wage, living wage, um, and, and so on. And um, those policies, we had what the media dubbed a policy blitz in early April. And those policies, there were some opinion polls which showed those policies were, were very popular. And that opinion poll came out one particular opinion poll, anyway, came out the weekend before she called the snap election. But they were ov- obviously hadn't paid attention to this. And in in um, um, in the book, I, I've got quotes at the beginning of each chapter that I think are sort of relevant to the theme of that chapter. And in the chapter about the calling of the snap election, uh, I've got a quote from a Clinton campaign person in Iowa after the Clinton people were taken by surprise by how well the Sanders campaign was going in Iowa, and we can talk about that in a minute, and uh, sent a message to Clinton headquarters saying, objects in your rearview mirror are closer than you think. And what uh, Theresa May really needed to do was have someone look in her rearview mirror, and they would, if she had, that you know, they would have, she would have seen that we were we were quite active with these policy announcements. They were going down well. We we had you know, we've got something going for us. We've got some momentum even before the election was actually called. And then they call, she calls this snap election. 18th of April. And then what? Shit hits the fan. And then we're all running around like blue-ass flies. Not in any sense in panic, but actually in excitement and enthusiasm because okay. this is actually the opportunity that people who've supported Jeremy wanted to actually take our message out to the entire country and argue argue for what he stood for and and uh, jeremy on the day that she called it within an hour of her calling it gave us all a pep talk in in the meeting room at uh, in the leader's office in in westminster where he said this is the fight of our lives and he was really up, he was really up for it and i think that's how we all felt but there was a lot of work we were running around like blue ass flies because there was so much work to do getting everything moving that needed we needed to get moving like starting to plan a voter registration campaign getting stuff produced for social media and all the basics of the campaign including things like the strap line that we were going to because at that point we hadn't decided on for the many not the few what was it before that uh, well, in the local elections, it was... Um, I'm John McDonnell. <laughs> stand, standing up for... I think it was standing up for you or standing up for 
for our communities because in the local elections, yeah. you know, you're not taking a local, you're taking power at a local level, but within very tight constraints. So the the slogan we had for that was that we you would be electing people who are going to fight for your community. But that wasn't obviously a slogan we could use in a general election. And at, at that point, we didn't have anything. And the next day, the day after the election was called, there was a meeting of the Labour Party's National Executive Committee, where Seamus and I had to do a presentation on the campaign. Right. And, uh, and I was busy, you know, writing the slides for the presentation. And Seamus was running around talking to a few key politicians, particularly the two campaign coordinators, Ian Lavery and Andrew Gwynn, about uh, you know what should be the strap line and and slogan for the election. Didn't you say you uh, took it from Mary Shelley poem? Uh, it's yeah, not Frankenstein Chronicles. No, it's not not Mary Shelley. It's um, it's Shelley Shelley. Shelley. Oh right, so I must have misread that because I yeah. thought like uh, she like writing poems after writing Frankenstein but there, but there is so much potential for Which a strap line done. I don't know but it's not it's not there <laughs> anyway yeah just somebody was just like the kid was doing like Frankenstein themes or something like oh I should apply this there is so much potential for strap line to go wrong though isn't it and um, it might be worth talking now about the division of labour so who was in charge of what into the campaign so obviously Seamus Milner's communications yeah she- Seamus Focus most of his uh, attention on. Uh, I mean, obviously, he had an overarching sure. role, but he's focused a lot of his attention throughout the campaign on what Jeremy was doing, what Jeremy was saying, and uh, the big TV later on, particularly the big TV debates and that sort of thing. Um, we we were all involved in. When I say we were all, I mean all the senior people were involved in speech writing to some degree. So I I did. Um, some speech writing, particularly early on the campaign, I did a fair bit of speech writing, and then other people were doing it as well. Andrew Fisher was doing more later on after the manifesto was out, and he was freed up. He would be doing more speech writing later on. As it evolved, I ended up taking overall responsibility for the Labour Party's campaign materials and social media, and their social media feeds and all their digital advertising, digital campaigning, but also things like newspaper advertising and all the printed literature that was being generated and direct mails and that kind of thing. So I was signing content off for that or writing content for that and making decisions on where we should spend money once we had some money, which wasn't until later. We didn't have much money to begin with. That was a problem in itself. And that led to some tensions over how that money was spent. But once we had oodles of money, which we did by the latter stage of the campaign, because we've got so many people have been contributing small donations and the unions have come in with some big money, particularly Unite. So once we had the money to spend, um, I was making calls on whether or not we would spend money on Google AdWords or Facebook advertising and stuff like that. And Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> no Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> Everything's strictly above board and within the rules. Steve's winking at yeah. the moment. <laughs> and, uh, so there's a so there's a, basically a comms sort of social media side, and then there's a what you said the, the street team almost the yeah. ground war and the air war. You said well the 
all of what we were doing, you would call the air war, because the air war is the is the overarching national campaign that right. sets the okay. kind of sets the overall mood. The ground war is the is the on the doorstep, sure. the constituency by constituency campaigning, which is run through the regions and the nations, and has a degree of sort of autonomy. You know, the constituencies and the regions will organise that, and we, we weren't. You know, we weren't all that involved in it, except insofar as obviously Jeremy was visiting loads yeah. of constituencies. He, I mean, he visited about hundred constituencies. Um, so, so the the air war, the big national campaign, the the main ingredients of that was Jeremy's roadshow and all the different big rallies that he did and that that sort of thing and constituency visits. It was all the social media, both Jeremy's own social media because he's got a big following on Twitter and and Facebook and the Labour Party's social media feeds things like the you know the labor website which was constantly being updated and new stuff being being put on that all the digital advertising whether it was snapchat or facebook or google adwords or whatever to to try and get people to look at different videos and visit the website and so on and then obviously in an election the media relations side of things becomes central because there's so much media coverage of the election and the, the broadcasters have all these big debates and programs and interviews and all the rest of it. So going back to what, how the responsibilities divided up, Seamus was looking particularly at that area and Jeremy's appearances on radio and television and, and that sort of thing. There were other people who were looking at Jeremy's roadshow and his visits and rallies and so on. And my my focus tended to be more on the social media and what you might call the campaign collateral, the all the different materials that were being produced, whether they be printed or digital. Great. In terms of well, you came up with the strapline, you know, for the many, not the few. So that must have been a, a light bulb. It wasn't. It wasn't my light bulb moment. From Frankenstein. It, 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 it was my light bulb moment. Was was when it was. Well, what happened? Just to explain the story, on the on the day after the election was called, and we had in the morning before we had to go to the national executive committee, we still hadn't settled on a strap line, and various ideas had been floated around and been discussed. None of which really were killer toys. Were, were very inspiring, <laughs> you know. They a lot of things that have been tried and tested. Words that you often hear later use, yeah. like fairness and that kind of thing. And this for the many, not the few, was actually a phrase that was used in Labour's constitution when Clause 4 was dropped right. back in the 1990s. And that was a move that was made by Tony Blair to get rid of public ownership yeah. out of Labour's constitution. So it was the new wording, which had this many, not the few in it, was was actually considered a kind of dilution of Labour's socialist values. But having said that, that particular phrase, many not the few, does encapsulate the idea of, you know, a society run in a radically different way, a society run for the many, not the few. And if you add in the Labour Constitution, you didn't have that magic word for the many, not the few. You you just had many, not the few. Um, so you reclaimed it then? In the discussions Seamus was having with Andrew Gwynn and Ian Lavery, the two MPs who were campaign coordinators, this came up and, uh, and Seamus... Quite, quite liked it. And then he came back to speak to me and said, what do you think? And it, that was my sort of, personally, that was my eureka moment when I thought, yes, you know, it's staring you in the face kind of thing. It, you can see it, you could just see it working. 
you know, it's my for fuck's sake moment. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 wonder, <laughs> I wonder if they thought the same. Who is the... Um, I, I always think back to Angela Eagle's leadership thing and there's just that pink... It's just Angela, just, isn't Angela. it? Angela. <laughs> it's releasing her own perfume brand. I know it was a eureka moment, but I think Billy Connolly, back when he was funny, did that um, thing and he said that every single person, no matter what you look like, will look at themselves in the mirror and think, well, I look, I look pretty good. But the different, the problem is there's a massive difference sometimes between what you think and, you know, what the objective reality is. Wasn't so that, was there ever a fear that... Well, wasn't that one, one of the issues with the Clinton campaign was that their uh, strap line was just kind of bad compared to Trump's, what was it? I'm with her. She's like, yeah, all right, she's okay. <laughs> and then Trump was like, you know, kind of, I guess nostalgic and make like, America great together yeah and it's and and like really good on the hats like as well yeah, yeah. So. well in the debate in the Democrat party now which I I follow with interest because I've I've got dual nationality so I, I I'm I've got a foot in both camps one of the thing one of the points that progressive people who supported Bernie Sanders are saying about the Clinton campaign is is there was no sense of in order to do these things, we've got to take something from those people. There was a sense of, whereas Bernie Sanders was saying, we've got to cut the power of Wall Street. You know, we've got to cut the power of the big corporations. We've got to cut the power of the billionaires. The Clinton campaign was sort of saying, well, we can make everything nice for everybody without upsetting Wall Street and without upsetting the billionaires. And that just wasn't credible. No one one really believed that. Whereas the, the phrase, for the many, not the few, is being very clear. We're running society. We're not saying that there is no price to pay here. We're just saying that great majority of people don't need to pay it because these people have got so much. These people have accumulated in, I mean, not just what happened prior to it, but particularly in the last nine years of austerity, you know, you've seen this huge increase in inequality, huge increase in the wealth of the top few percent, whilst other people have had either declining living standards or, you know, negligible in- improvements in their living standards. It's just, it's just effective left populism, isn't it? I say that as a, in a good, in the best possible sense. Right, Steve, to implicate uh, probably my brother and, and other people who are listening and interested in like technical, maybe nerdy things about social media and stuff... How do you then proceed with the social media campaign? And you said, you know, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, and is it all based on data or intel about, as you said, Google, Google Analytics? What do you, what did you do? Well, there's there's two there's two parts to it. The first part is the organic activity, which is the not paid for social media activity. And like I say, Jeremy at the start had a very big following; he had eight hundred thousand followers on Twitter, for example. So he did have this huge organic presence of people who are just interested in what he had to say and would share what he had to say and would you know would encourage other people to follow him and what that comes down to the success of that comes down to two things one is the politics obviously striking a chord with people but the second is that the material the content is is lively and interesting it's got a bit of humor it's got humanity it's got hope you know the other crucial ingredients and so jeremy had um a really good guy who did his own he did all his facebook and uh, is this an inside scoop that he doesn't do his own uh twitter and (laughs) no he uh breaking news (laughs) he he has a big part in it but obviously someone is it's a full-time job for somebody to orchestrate all that and coordinate the production of videos and 
So, so that was all going on. I mean, that had been going on throughout Jeremy's leadership anyway. But in the election campaign, we, we upgraded that and we got extra resources in, videographers, another guy to help the guy who was do, do, had been doing it full time and so on. And through the campaign, Jeremy's following was increasing at a rate of about 50,000, 60,000 a week. So he was up over a million very quickly and then like on, yeah. on from that. But, I mean, if you think of social media as this huge, great pond, then even with a big organic following like Jeremy had, the ripples don't go all the way across. You know, there's probably 30 million people who are on Facebook in Britain. And at the beginning of the campaign, typically maybe two or three million people were being reached with Jeremy's content. And that grew to four or five million by the end of the campaign. Now, that's fantastic, but you're still not reaching right across the pond. So the question then is, where in that pond do you want to reach? You know, where do you want your, if you're throwing pebbles out, where do you want them to land so that the ripples spread across more of the pond? And that's where the data comes in. That's where the targeting comes in. And that's where you do have to spend money. And so once we had some money to spend, which was midway through the campaign. Sorry to interject. Where does this money suddenly come from? Just pe- Well, we were getting this phenomenal... Uh, Moscow response. <laughs> yeah, on uh, well, if if they were doing it, they were doing it very cleverly. Because that's we had, how they we had literally hundreds of thousands of people making donations, <laughs> and the average was about twenty quid. So it's amazingly. I've never personally known anything like it. Uh, that it's, kind it's, of fundraising, so it's basically all, all based on smaller donations. Small donations. I mean, we raised four million in online donations at an average of twenty pounds, and then about another million in other personal donations that were also mostly quite small. Uh, amounts and then on top of that money coming in from the unions which which is also I mean it's often there's a bit of a myth about this money from the unions I mean people pay the political levy yeah, I, exactly, you know, yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm in the NUJ now which is not affiliated to the Labour Party but I used to be in the, one of the predecessors of Unite and I used to pay the political levy and you, you do it knowing that your union supports the Labour Party so this money the, the question then was to go back to social media, you know, how to, how to break that up. And we ended up spending about 1.2 million of it on social media, on digital in one way or another. That might be, I think about half a million of that was Facebook. And we did advertising on YouTube. You know, these adverts that come up when you want to watch a, mm. watch, watch a video and a little sort of 20 yeah. second thing that comes up. Well, we were, we were doing that kind of thing. And through those advertising channels, you can target particular geographies, demographics, and that sort of thing. So that's where the targeting comes in. Obviously, we had, I wasn't particularly involved in the data side of it, but over many, many years, the Labour Party has built up data about constituencies and canvas returns, uh, information about people who are on the electoral register and how they like to vote. So there's sure. a whole vast quantity of data that's in the public domain and quite legitimately gathered that you can you can then match up with advertising targeting. And in terms of what we just said about, you know, I guess the non-voters or people who, to what extent is that, was the, was the social media stuff targeted at, you know, young people, non-voters or Nathan and I have both spoken about, if you've ever been political, you know, political campaigning, on the ground, out in constituencies, uh, as a lot of people know, it's, I think it's an Americanism, you know, this the triangulation, but focusing on, you know, marginal constituencies, uh, focusing on people who, you know, basically not skipping non-voters and fo- focused on people who may vote Labour and then um, you get them to sort of commit or 
you, you think that they're going to commit and then you tick it off. How different then is that was a social media targeting campaign in terms of looking at different sectors of the population specifically? Well, you you can you can be very focused. So you you can, for example, at the beginning of the campaign, one of the first things, some a small pot of money we had for social media that was specifically given by Unite, was for the voter registration campaign aimed at young people, which we launched at the end of the second week of just at the end of April, and. And obviously that was targeted mainly at young people and getting getting them to re- register and to try and get some momentum into the social media with the hashtag, you know, register to vote, get some momentum behind that and reach as many young, young people as possible beyond the, the ones that were already following Jeremy, which is a very high percentage of his 800,000 followers were, were young people. But then later in the campaign, when the dementia tax became a big issue because of the Tory manifesto, we bought dementia tax on Google. So anyone who was searching for dementia tax, information about dementia tax, would have been offered a link to the Labour website with our Q&A about the dementia tax on it. Um, Now, that's not all that targeted demographically, but it is targeted as a particular subject interest. Mm. And obviously, a lot of voters, older voters, would be worried about that and would be looking for information about it. And we were offering them a link to our our information. And then a bit beyond that in the campaign, we felt that Brexit was still, with older voters, an issue where we hadn't clarified our position and where there were a lot of older voters who were pro-Brexit who, who didn't understand that we had accepted the result of the referendum and we weren't, we weren't working to undermine it or try and reverse it, but we were working to make a Brexit that was going to be favourable to, to working people, not the sort of Liam Fox... Boris Johnson kind of Brexit. And uh, and so Jeremy late on, and we we took a strategic decision quite late on the campaign that Jeremy would do a speech on specifically on Brexit in the penultimate week. And around that time, we targeted a lot of clips from his speech and a lot of stuff about Brexit to older voters in, in key areas that we were targeting in the north of England, probably in the South Wales Valleys. I can't remember now, but we had a, I remember we had a pool of about the digital guy said to me, "We've got to pull the five hundred thousand older voters who are Brexit leaning. Do you want to target them?" And I said, "Yes." <laughs> you know, it was that kind of decision. You were yeah. taking decisions every day, well, right through it, every hour practically. Because with social social media and digital advertising, you can be very nimble. You know, it's not like direct mail campaigns where you have to plan them weeks in advance, and things have got to go to print, and there's postage and all the rest of it. With digital, you can be incredibly nimble and you can take a decision in in the morning and that will be implemented within, well, within minutes possibly, yeah. but, but certainly within hours. So I guess previous Labour campaigns have been famous, particularly Peter Mandelson, his media operation run out of Millbank, and it was famous because for the discipline, everyone in the Labour Party under Blair had to be on message and and, you know, and sort of media appearances were tightly controlled or allegedly. And that's hence people sort of giving sound bites because they weren't allowed to say anything else mm-hmm. other than sort of parrot the, the Labour Party's line. To what extent does, was discipline an issue? I mean, how do you, firstly, do you have to sort of police Labour Party members? And how difficult is that to do on social media? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we are in a new age. There's so much going on. You haven't got time to really police things to that degree. You've, you've got to rely 
on people's self-discipline. And and to be fair, in spite of all, all, all I've said about how bad the meetings of the PLP were in, in the early stages when I first started, the vast majority of PLP members and party members generally, once that election was called, they wanted to do you know, make the best of it they could and they wanted to campaign and they, they were, they might have been cynical about our chances nationally, but they knew that by, you know, going off message and attacking Jeremy or whatever, that they would actually spoil their own chances. Um, there were some exceptions to that. There were some people who went out of their way to attack Jeremy during the election uh, in order, they thought, they would help them electorally, I think, to distance yeah. themselves from Jeremy. But, but they were few and far between who were actually overtly negative than handfuls of people I, I would say but in terms of message discipline what you're mainly able to control is all the stuff that's generated nationally the campaign materials the stuff that's the adverts and stuff the organically posted stuff on social media or whatever obviously the speech content that you know is being produced and the team of people that go on to national media so we had about uh, eight people who were our regular what we call message carriers on tv and radio trusted Front, trusted performers well the people who are good performers and and who uh were in the shadow cabinet and uh you know they might they might have a specific brief like you know An- angela rayner for education obviously yeah. john mcdonald was a key person sorry thornbury emily thornbury yeah. was one of the stars in mm. terms of you know, her media performances. And the horses for courses. I mean, you know, Ian Lavery and Andrew Gwynn were good in the in the spin room after the after the debates, you know, giving Boris Johnson a hard time. So so different people you would you would use different people for different different uh, media opportunities. But all of them were people who understood what the key policies were, the key messages were, and would stick, you know, stick to that. People who choose to go, you know, quote unquote, off message or whatever, was there an attempt to like discipline them? Say, you know, basically shut up or read uh, the bit of the manifest about gulags. And if, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you're no, not there's no, there was, there was no. I mean, there were there were a few things in the national press. I mean, midway through the campaign, there was some pieces in the Sunday Times. Leaks. By, well, there were leaks, and there were articles by former Labour officials. Yeah saying things that were blatantly untrue about Jeremy having given up on trying to get a Labour government and uh, he should do the decent thing and resign after this election, that sort of thing. That were going on, you know, here we were in the in the midst of a real battle against a, a nasty Tory party that had plans to do some pretty bad things. And these people were rocking the boat like that now but there was no time to kind of break off from the campaigning yeah. and do anything about it you just had to carry on with the strategy we had i want to go back to you said about targeting different sort of demographics and obviously young people played a massive role in the corbyn surge to what extent do you have any affiliation uh, whether formally or informally or knowledge of the, i guess the grind for corbyn phenomena you know did people did you practically set up like the meetings between Corbyn and mm. Jamie? Uh, I didn't personally, and I'll be honest, you know. Knew them from I'm, back in I'm, the day I'm, I'm, <laughs> when I'm, they're I'm, up and coming. <laughs> uh, sorry? Knew them from back in the day, you know, when you're up and coming. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sort of a bit, yeah. I'm a bit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Mind you, I do, I do have a son who's into all that. Oh, so I was, I was able to message him on WhatsApp and say, who the hell is this JM, yeah. JME anyway? But no, we did have, we did have people in the campaign who were quite plugged into all that. Yeah. And you were pushing at an open door. That's one of the things I, there's almost, I noticed a bit of cynicism about this at the time. But it was just because, well, obviously, you know, people from the inner cities and people who are poor and anyone who, you know, grime artists are going to be, of course, they're going to be anti-austerity. Mm. It's just, as you said, it's an obvious, it's an obvious alliance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and, and it added a, a real buzz to the campaign. It was some, it's a different dimension, and the sun on the day that Jeremy did the uh, the video with Jeremy, the sun ridiculed it, said it was embarrassing, and so on. But I don't, you know. I think that just shows how out of touch the sun is, not how out of touch Jeremy is, because it it went it went a bomb on social media. It kept going. Basically, Grime for Corbyn became a, a thing. It's, its own yeah. thing. Yeah. But was that did that have any relationship with with you guys, or was it just something it, that it just was sort a, it, of happened? It was, it was a kind of combination of the two. There were things that were organised proactively by the campaign and approaches that were made uh, to get support, but then it developed a life of its own and people were doing things. I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying that JME video, I wasn't personally involved in it, was produced independently. It wasn't produced. Okay. Uh, we, we, we didn't actually set up the, the videoing of that. The next step for me is Corbyn appearing in a drill video with, you know, Baraclava on and calling people out. Um, and so I guess the next question from that is, what's the relationship with momentum in all this? Because obviously they played a massive part in yeah. um, in the campaign in terms of a momentous part, <laughs> but you know, really, really, I think intelligent, hard hitting, effective uh, videos in particular on Facebook, um, especially what, by Ken Loach. Isn't it? Well, Ken Ken was Ken's role was uh, in producing the party political broad. Well, three of the five party political broadcasts, and they were of a, a kind of unique. You know, only Ken could have done them. Mm. Really, they were cares for Corbyn. Yeah. <laughs> The, the final one, which was Ken's third one, was about the health service. And his skill is getting, you know, authentic people to talk about stuff. And, and in this particular one, he's got a whole range of people who work in the health service talking about what, what it's like and what's going on. And there's this consultant who starts telling a story of someone who needed a hospital bed and what happened. And in the middle of it, this consultant breaks down in tears and... That was another one of my areas of responsibility. I was responsible right. for the PPBs. I'm not taking any credit for them. I was just responsible oh, for coordinating, <laughs> coordinating it and making sure that stuff was done to deadline. But Assistant director. Which, which was a great, great, great uh, privilege because it meant I was in the edit suite with... Uh, with Ken Loach, you know, I could see see the guy at work, and well, he was showing me more or less finished pieces. But then I I could I did actually make a couple of changes. Did you give any pointers? <laughs> I heard the other day that uh, while filming Saving Private Ryan, Vin Diesel kept giving Steven Spielberg advice on directing. <laughs> yeah, well, I bet that went down. Like, were you not worried that you know Ken Loach would make like rel- relentlessly sort of bleak social realist? Uh... A lot of people just staring into the middle distance. Just yeah. uh, well, his second his, cap- his second his second one was if. He did one on the economy, which was shot in the northeast, and it was it was a bit bleak in places, I must admit. But, because uh, the Onion did that thing, didn't they? And it was like, um, who's the famous Danish director? Oh, um, Lars von Trier. Yeah, yeah, they said you know the Onion did that, and it was like Lars von Trier is going to direct the new Visit Denmark adverts, and um, <laughs> and you know it's just a woman running through a woods screaming, and she gets murdered, and then it just says Visit Denmark. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, all right. So I digress. Um, so what? So, what relationship do you have with Momentum then? Are they form because they're not formally 
part no, of the Labour Party. No, they, they, they were, I mean, like, like any part of the broad, what I would call the broad Labour movement, they were doing, uh, you know, they had their own campaigning activities. The unions also had hmm. lots of campaigning activities, mobilising their members and publicising different policies and that sort of thing. And so likewise, you know, Momentum had, they were mobilising people to go into marginal constituencies to support local parties. Uh, they were doing their own stuff on social media, which was very successful as well. And that was a parallel, you know, independent campaign. But like with the unions, we would be aware of what they were doing and there'd be liaison. So with also with Momentum, that we were aware of what they were doing. And There's an aspect of quality control then. Not really, not... I don't remember any instances where we would say, oh, you can't do that. or You, you know, yeah. they were, there's a lot of trust between the people in Jeremy's team and the people who were organizing things in Momentum because they'd worked so closely together in two leadership battles and they were really sort of steeled in struggle. Personally, I was much more involved in the orchestration of the Labour machine, publicity machine and the digital campaigning for the Labour Party. So I, I didn't personally deal much with momentum and that side of things. But they, along with other, that there was a nickname for people who did all this kind of semi-independent campaigning. Uh, and they were called outriders. They were the sort of out, outright, on social media, they were the social media outriders. And there's quite a few people, if you look around on social, I'm sure you have, People, do you know Peter Stavanovich? He does a lot of campaigning on social media around the NHS and uh, WASPy women. So there are these people who are doing, they're operating autonomously. Yeah, but they're, but, but they're doing it it's very complimentary. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so, so the Labour Party are very aware of people like Owen Jones and stuff like that and their role. And their role. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, someone like Owen would be a great, you know, campaigning ally. Yeah. And sometimes he's. Like lately, he's been he's been running this campaign where he's going into key marginals and, uh, and organizing organizing campaigning on specific days. So this is a Welsh podcast. We have to kind of link it in, don't we? <laughs> no, but it, it it is fascinating because you said about the sort of the kind of autonomy of the regional and uh, the national campaigns. What was noticeable for the Welsh campaign was this attempt to distance themselves from Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, that's undeniable. I mean, um, if you read what Martin Shipton said and. And all the analysis of the, the Welsh Labour campaign, up until the last minute, they're clearly thinking that Jeremy Corbyn is electoral kryptonite, and they're you know it's been fronted by Carmen Jones, mm. which, from a Welsh perspective, beyond the election, is a bad thing because it's confusing people about who's you know, people like what's Carmen Jones doing fronting a Westminster campaign and so on. And mm. so, what was the relationship like? With the, was there an awareness that the, the Welsh campaign weren't putting Jeremy Corbyn front and centre? Yes, I mean, we, we were very conscious of that. But at the same time, we didn't want to get into an argument with the, with the Welsh Labour Party over it because make we, felt, we felt uh, the more important thing to do was to get on with the, the air war mm. that I was talking about, the national campaign, and to make that as successful as possible. And I think it was understandable that Welsh Labour would brand themselves Welsh Labour because we have got a national assembly sure. and there are things that are devolved and so the identity of the labor party in wales has got to fit in with that so that i don't i don't have a problem with that but there, there, there it was clear that there was a a degree to which the welsh party was was keeping us at arm's length and towards the end of the campaign i, I came down for rodri's funeral because i knew rodri well 
personally and also I was asked to represent Jeremy who couldn't attend and after the funeral I was chatting to a few assembly members and to Anna McMorran the candidate in Cardiff North mm. and I tell this story in the book I, I was shocked to discover that Anna didn't have any staff support at all she she'd given up her her day job to campaign her own agent was had a had a job so it was only part-time Apart from herself, she didn't have anyone working full time on the campaign, and that was staggering for me in a in a seat that I considered a winnable marginal seat. And it was obvious that the mindset was that still, I mean, we'd had this debate at a national level, a UK level, about you know defensive versus offensive seats, and there was a strong argument at the beginning of the campaign from the Labour officials to concentrate on defensive seats because of what the polls were saying, and we wanted. Jeremy's team wanted a more offensive strategy where we believed we could we could do much better than the polls were saying and we believe we could win seats. So nationally, by the middle of the campaign, things had moved and there was a recognition across the board between the Labour Party officials and Jeremy's team that things were moving and we, we did go into a more offensive mode and we were spending more money on Tory-held seats and so on. But that didn't seem to have permeated into Wales where... In Cardiff North, there was still uh, no full-time sport. Anyway, the morning after Rodri's funeral, I was my first job when I went back into Southside Labour's head office in Westminster was to see him at Nicol, the Party General Secretary, and say we need to get staff support into Cardiff North. And I mean, to be fair, he acted on it, and there were some staff put in there, pretty sharpish. Uh, but by that stage, it was quite late in the campaign. It was we were we were only about seven or eight days from. From polling day. I mean, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by this because for a lot of people, you know, our listeners in particular, this, you know, the degree of autonomy between Welsh Labour and sort of, you know, Labour at Westminster. I mean, our friend Di Moon's come on before and said that this is because on paper there isn't a Welsh Labour Party, is there? I mean, there's a Scottish Labour Party, but the Welsh Labour Party is only informally autonomous. Mm. But clearly it has, that is a real autonomy. But I mean, is there an awareness that, I mean, why isn't there any attempt then during the campaign to say, well, actually, Welsh Labour aren't putting Jeremy Corbyn front and centre. We want to stamp on this. Is it because of a respect for the fact that stuff is devolved or is it just... I think there's two things. One is the point that I made that there wasn't time to get into too many right, okay. internal arguments sure, okay. about things. There was so much to do that if there was a problem in one area, you just moved your attention on onto another area and uh, and also i would say that in spite of the point i've just made about cardiff north and the fact that there was definitely a sense that we were being kept a bit at arm's length i i can't say that there was a specific time when we wanted to come into wales that they said no you can't you know sure. jeremy can't come in because he did come into north wales on the uh, when was it the, the day before polling yeah. wales was included in the tour and one of the rallies that we had when we did those six simultaneous rallies was in Barry. I mean, Jeremy was speaking in Birmingham, but Wales was part of part of that. So there's never any resistance when there were specific things like that. You know, there, there was no resistance to to Wales being included. But generally speaking, I mean, Jeremy only did come into Wales, I think, two or three times mm. during the campaign. I th- I think he, he could have come in more times. But having said that, where you know, we did very well in Wales, and. You know, I like to think that that was a reflection of the national campaign as much as it was a reflection of the, of the local campaign. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for us, I mean, my take on that is that the, the irony is that the people who basically try to distance, distance themselves from Jeremy Corbyn have 
massively profited from the fact that people like the Labour Party manifesto, particularly young people, mm. they didn't really expect it. But now, after the fact, they're like, oh, fantastic, <laughs> thanks, Jeremy. And, you know, there's the people who benefited from, you know, a lot of the Welsh MPs were clearly hostile to Jeremy Corbyn, mm. but they benefited from the Corbyn bounce, mm. which, I don't know, I find it a bit hypocritical, but hey. So what happened, I mean, all the way through the campaign, what are the Tories doing? I mean, what sort of attacks are you getting? I mean, how are they reacting to you know, your campaign and how, how do you deal with I, th- I think becoming more and more desperate. I mm-hmm. mean, at first they were, they tried to, they did things like the tax bombshell, you know, trying to attack us on economic policy and over the manifesto, you know, return to the 1970s, nationalisation, all the rest of it. And none of that worked. And I, I don't I don't think it worked because, well, I think there's there's still a bit of a legacy about, economic questions about Labour's yeah, alleged the crisis, yes, so. competency. And that, that mud did stick, mainly because it wasn't really countered mm. by Ed Balls when he was Shadow Chancellor. But on the nationalisation one, I think I think it probably backfired, the Tory attack on that, because public ownership of the railways, the opinion polls show that is very popular, and water likewise, and, and, and energy. So that wasn't working. And so they were floundering around trying to find something that, that would work and as the campaign went on they got more and more desperate until the final weekend their you know desperation led to them playing the race card and sending an ad van out in the north of england and probably several but we definitely know of one because we've got a photograph of it with you know do you want theresa may or jeremy corbyn and diane abbott and there was no reason for diane abbott to be on that ad van because Amber Rudd, her opposite number, Tory opposite number, wasn't on the other side. The only reason, in our opinion, for her being on that advert was because she's black. And it was sort of saying, you know, basically, I mean, I discussed it with Diane herself. And she's saying, you know, that their tactic is to say, do you want a black woman as Home Secretary? That's okay. that's simply what they're saying. And then on top of that, they did the nastiest attack ad of the campaign against her, trying to portray her as having voted against al-Qaeda being on the prescribed list, uh, anti-terrorism legislation prescribed list. Now, this was actually not not true, or it was much more complicated than they were portraying it, because there was this, this goes back nearly 20 years, there was this prescribed list that was introduced, which had 20-odd organisations on it, and you couldn't vote for or against a specific organisation. You had to vote for or against the whole concept of a prescribed list, and Diane was far from being the only person who was unhappy about it. There were even some Tory MPs who were unhappy about it. The Lib Dems abstained on it. The SNP abstained on it and argued against it. So there was quite a wide spectrum of people who were unhappy about this prescribed list. And her unhappiness was nothing to do with Al-Qaeda being one of the 21. She wouldn't have voted against them. It was to do actually with a Kurdish organisation. She had a lot of Kurdish uh, people in her constituency. Uh, that was being prescribed, and that was her. That was the one she was specifically concerned about, and she was concerned about the, the concept. But they made this advert was saying explicitly to to people, Diane Abbott voted against Al Qaeda being banned, as if that was what the vote was about. Reprehensible, isn't it? Yeah. And at the same time, you know, the Conservatives, like the Americans, are obviously training Al Qaeda in Syria uh, mm-hmm. under a new new name. What else, Nate? There was one thing I was just about to... You're going to say, if there's anything else that you could have done differently and you felt better, what would have been? Yeah, I mean... Who would you have assassinated? It's it's always hard uh, with these things to say, you know, what, what, what what you would have done differently. I mean, had we had more money earlier, 
then I think we would have pushed a lot more money into the offensive. Tory held seats earlier, and that could have, you know, that could have moved things uh, for us in a few more. If if you look at if you look at some of the seats we didn't win, I forget the exact figure, but I think I'm right in saying that there's something like 60 seats that where the margin of victory for the Tories was only was or the Tories or the SNP, was less than a couple of thousand. You know, there, there are a lot of seats anyway that were very, very, we narrowly lost. So, you know, had, had we had more money earlier and been able to pump it into those seats, it could have been different. With hindsight, um, you know, may, maybe we should have invested more time in Scotland. Well, yeah, that, that was actually going to be my next question. I mean, I wanted to get your opinion, Steve, on, I mean, there was a Keezy Dugdale's campaign quite clearly was targeting the SNP quite negatively and basically her campaign was all about the SNP and Labour taking seats off the SNP mm. and SNP activists argued that well actually if Labour hadn't targeted SNP seats I probably think you're going to target wherever you think you can win but SNP activists retrospectively say well if Keezia Dugdale and Labour hadn't taken our seats off us and targeted us we would have had enough people to at an FNPs to form the coalition Mm. with Jeremy Corbyn and keep the to- Tories out. So they blame sort of Keatsia Dugdale for mm. letting the Tories in by taking the SNP seats off and this, thereby denying this overall progressive majority. What do you think? Any truth to that? Um, validity to that criticism? Well, you, the, the reality of the situation is that the SNP mostly took their seats off Labour. So the natural place where we would have a chance of winning seats would be the seats that we used to hold that the SNP now hold. Although I disagree with Kezia Dugdale on quite a few things, that's not wouldn't be particularly one of them. To be fair, um, I mean I'm sure there are some seats that we can win off the Tories. I've looked at the list lately, but but the bulk of the seats we need to win to improve our own position and win an outright majority, are frankly, are from the SNP in Scotland. That's the that's the that's the demographic and would there ever reality. would there ever would there ever be a situation where you think right okay well. I know people are compass and stuff are pushing for progressive alliance. Would there ever be a situation where you say, right, we'll just leave you to that one and then we'll focus on this one? Uh, I can't I can't envisage that. Uh, I, I really can't envisage that. You know, there, there, there are obviously people in the SNP who've got progressive positions on issues where you could envisage working with them on specific issues. You know, I, I come from a background... In terms of campaigning, although I've been a Labour Party member for, you know, twenty-five plus years, uh, I come from a background of campaigning on single-issue campaigns like the anti-apartheid movement and anti-racist movement, that sort of thing. Where I'm, I'm comfortable with working with people from other parties, the Green Party, or, I mean, SNP wasn't an issue for me because I've either been active in Sheffield, where I lived for twenty years, or here, here in South Wales. So I, I don't have a problem with working with people from other parties on single issues, but I do think when it comes to an election and you've got your own programme, you have to go out there and fight for it, especially with our electoral system. But that might be a different, I mean, after the fact, after the results are in, would that be a different situation? You'd be open to video of a coalition? Yeah, no, our, our position, I mean, we got we got to the stage where things were looking so promising. Mm. We were seriously discussing what we would do in yeah. the event of a hung parliament and Jeremy forming a government and even down to the questions of staffing of Downing Street. Yeah. Because you have to be ready for those kind of things. 
we, we would have had a confidence that we wouldn't have got we wouldn't have got into coalition discussions, but we would have had a confidence and supply sure. arrangement. And obviously, that would have meant you know being prepared to discuss certain policy questions in order to ensure that we got the support of the minority parties. Constitutionally, would that be a direct? There would be ever any compromise on the you know, Scottish independence or. No, I, 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 not, not, not on my part. You know, I think, I think that we're better off. If you look at it from the standpoint of the interests of working people as a whole, the interests of the many, not the few, then I think they're they're better served by us sticking together within Britain and bringing about progressive change in Britain as a whole. Was that conversation ever had within the the Labour Party leadership in terms of is the, is that a red line for a confidence and supply sort of agreement? If Labour had to wanted to get get into Downing Street, I don't think we got down to that level of. I, I yeah. can't remember getting down to that level of detail. I'm not saying it wasn't discussed, but you know, so much going on. The results, you know, are coming in. Probably won't not worth going through you know, the night, or if people are sort of sober, or or how you. I do want people to read the book anyway. So <laughs> yeah, so exactly. so the night the night how the night unfolded is is the first chapter. Okay, so shan't uh, no spoilers here. But yeah, for anyone who hasn't followed the election, <laughs> but we know you know we know what happened with a bit of distance and time. You and the campaign now. How do you feel? I mean, obviously, as you said, in some senses, it is a it was a victory, and people were saying for a while after you know Jeremy Corbyn is the prime minister, and there's huge optimism and mm. happiness even in defeat, which I thought was. Well, I shared myself, and I thought mm. it was a bit of a weird feeling. Maybe, as I said before, purely because a socialist and you know redistributive ideas were kind of front and center for the first time, rather than any the overall result. Mm. Do you f- now feel that you could have done better? That you know, do you think sometimes, well, we, we could have got into Downing Street when when you're very close like that, and when there are a number of seats where they where you 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 missed out by a handful of votes or a few hundred votes, you always wonder, you know, what else you could have done. But the fact of the matter is, we denied the Tories a majority. That meant that they couldn't do many of the things that were in their manifesto. When the Queen's speech came along, there was no dementia tax. There was no getting rid of the triple lock. There was no winter, getting rid of winter fuel allowance for millions of pensioners. There was no move on the ban on fox hunting as well. Um, and a whole, you know, there were a number of other things that weren't in the Queen's speech. So we stopped a whole number of nasty things happening. And in that sense, it was a victory. Yeah. You know, it was an actual victory because people won't suffer those things. And that's important for those, you know, millions of people who might have been affected. But at the same time, you know, you you go into these things wanting to have a Labour government. And I think the important thing is that we've created a basis now for the Labour Party to win the next election. You know, we've moved so far forward in the polls that that support, I wouldn't, never take support for granted. You've got to constantly refresh it, renew it, win people over to to what you're saying. And obviously there are constant attacks on Jeremy Corbyn on a whole number of fronts. So you have to kind of combat those attacks. But the fact is we're we're holding that position of being 40% plus in the polls. And that gives us a very strong basis for going into the next next election. And if we can then run a, a really good campaign building on all the good things we did in the last one, but adding to them, then we've got every chance of winning it. All right, absolutely fascinating. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real privilege. Um, a great insight into what it's like running a campaign. As Lastly, as is tradition, is there anyone you'd like to give a, you know, a shout out to or maybe start an argument with or beef with? 
<laughs> no one, no one, especially other than actually Jeremy Corbyn. I think starting a beef with Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> uh, not starting, a, no, not starting a beef with Jeremy Corbyn. But actually, you know, I'm. I was 63 when I started this. Just started working for him last year. I'm 64 now, and um, you don't expect at that stage in your life to be called upon to do something so exciting and interesting and challenging. And for me, it was a great uh, way to kind of go out with a bang in terms of my professional career as a kind of com communications person. And I was a journalist. And and I've got to thank Jeremy for that, really, um, because it's an experience of a lifetime being involved in a campaign like that. And I wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened uh, without the fact that he became leader of the Labour Party and fought through all the difficulties to stay leader of the Labour Party and do well in an election. Fantastic. Steve, thanks very much. So the Game Changer, Eight Weeks at Transform British Politics is out very soon and it's published by... Accent Press, Accent a Cardiff-based publisher. Oh, there you go. Fantastic. So, And know. it'll be available on usual outlets, bookshops, Amazon, dare I mention them. <laughs> Great. Okay. Thanks very much, Steve. Right. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Great show as always. Yeah. All right. Thanks to us. Let's wrap up, man. Yeah, wrap it real quick. Do you have shout-outs? Yeah, I do. So, I basically Googled us. Getting married. Yeah, it's just sort of Googled uh, Desolation Radio. And what I saw was that on, people have been like bumping us on Reddit. And I, I don't go on Reddit, but apart from when people send me like sort of weird links from Reddit. Mm. Um, but I just wanted like a sh give a shout out to some of the lads that have been like dutifully sort of boosting us on there. So these are your Reddit usernames. So thank you, Copa72, Hack Anazari, and Recreational Wanker. Awesome name, by the way. Uh, so yeah, thanks very much for sort of trying to promote this. Keep up the good work, even if people aren't actually listening. And that's it. Thank you. Uh, my shout-outs are The New God of War, which is fantastic. Uh, recommend it to everyone. Uh, the Grainchill theme tune, which I think is a, a slept-on hit. And I'm going to start a beef. Some that's annoyed me for ages. Is um, You ever been to Cardiff uh, Shopping Centre and they've got those art shops? God, I hate art, man. No, but that <laughs> art, because it's just like, oh, here's a picture of Marilyn Monroe with some sequins on, and it's uh, you can buy it for like three grand. Oh, because... petty bourgeoisie. Yeah, but... Pet, petty bourgeois art. Yeah, because like, you're, buying, you're buying an art, basically. All right, let's go buy an art. Oh, art costs a lot. Let's buy some tacky art. So I hate those. And I also hate, I will say, um, as I said before, I hate the term melt. Gammon, maybe even worse. John like gammon? Uh, no. It's a slur. It's just uh, like who's who's making? I don't know. I do know who's making this up. Just cool. Just use traditional swear words like nonce. Yeah, yeah, but like prick. stop trying to be like you know dog like shagger. like yeah yeah. Just call <laughs> someone like you know a dog shagger. Yeah, um, like oh you gammon. It's like oh just keep it in London. Like shut up. <laughs> All right. So oh yeah. What about your beef? If you're interested in Ace's, um discussed about uh, art, then you should listen to our previous episode on Bourdieu. No, no more beef. I'm just all about peace and love. And so I want to say I'm going to be representing the pod, the podcast down in in the Bougie Central, Crackhack Central, in Llandaelo Literature Festival tomorrow, giving a talk on alternative media. Which, uh, when By this the time is released, listen, yeah, it would have happened. Been, so you know, just so you should come. Yeah, you so should definitely, definitely come and up. check it out. <laughs> oh yeah, um, my mum as well uh, has uh, lent us money to get t-shirts because yeah, uh, at at the age. Uh, both of us uh, at the age of like 30 and over is where we want to be in our lives. Or we're just oh, getting handouts from my mum. I've got 20 quid, yeah. She probably would, to be honest. She's a legend. So big shout out to my mum, who's the best lady ever. Or one of them.
best person. Who knows? She's okay. All right. Ta-ra. Bye. I'm not a witch. I'm nothing you've heard. I'm you. None of us are perfect, but none of us can be happy with what we see all around us. Politicians who think spending, trading favors, and backroom deals are the ways to stay in office. I'll go to Washington and do what you'd do. I'm Christine O'Donnell, and I approve this message. I'm you.